Here's um, radiation in the near infrared, big sunspots are having an impact, but when you go to the ultraviolet, you see the variations are quite different and they're dominated by the bright factor. So, it's important to remember that the sun's radiation doesn't all go up and down together, but bits of it go up and down in different ways depending on the wavelength, and the wavelength of the radiation is deposited in different layers in the system. So, where does this you know, bring the sun to climate change? Well, there are many causes of climate change, I'm sure everyone knows that. Solar variability is one of two primary natural forces, the other of course being volcanic eruptions, where aerosols from volcanoes um, are um, ejected into primarily the stratosphere and then impact climate. The primary, a primary forcing in terms of radiative forcing is the anthropogenic forcing from greenhouse gases, which produce a positive radiative forcing, and from tropospheric aerosols, tropospheric as opposed to stratospheric, because these reside in the troposphere and produce a cooling. And then we have things like land cover changes, and we have internal oscillations of the climate system itself. Uh, for example, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. When there are big changes in the temperature, the surface temperature or the ocean temperature in the Pacific, this affects the global signal, and I'll show you things like this. There's also the North Atlantic Oscillation. So the challenge for the sun and understanding the response of the climate system to the sun, you can see, is, is a big challenge because first of all, we have to know the natural variability. Then we have to um, extract a small signal from the sun, from what we think are bigger signals from anthropogenic change and land cover changes, and then we have to understand things like indirect effects from the stratosphere. So, how does the current uh, record of global surface temperature look? This is from the um, Cambridge, uh, the, um, the University of East Anglia Climate Research, Research Unit in England. It's the white curve is the time series over the past two and a half decades of global surface temperature. So it's, it's the oceans and the land globally. And you can see it's gone up by a few tenths um, of a degree centigrade. There's a red curve, which I can't see very well, but I hope you can, that module or that, that reproduces part of the variability. And that red curve is simply the combined effects taken into a global scaling of the unlinear southern oscillation which is this sloshing back and forth of warm to cold areas in the tropical um, Pacific and of volcanic influences. So when you put those two records together, you can reproduce a good part of the variance, maybe 25-30% of the variance. And the values here, in, in a big ENSO, the global surface temperature has changed by about 0.2K. For the Pinatubo, Pinatubo volcano, it's about 0.3K. So these are the numbers of the natural variability, and you can see they're somewhat sporadic. Now, if you remove this red curve from the white curve, in other words, move, remove the effects of ENSO and volcanic activity from the observations, you find, firstly, there's still decadal variability left, and there's an upward trend. So the simplest explanation for that is to ask, well, what could be causing this? The upward trend, it's hard to get that from the ensemble of volcanic activities, and I've shown here the sun's brightness changes um, converted now to a temperature change from the measurements that I showed you earlier. And you see, they don't have an upward trend over this period either. They have an 11-year cycle. The upward trend that I'm showing here is the combined forcing by increasing greenhouse gases and cooling by tropospheric aerosols. So this combination of things, the sun, 
the anthropogenic gases and, so and volcanic activity together can, can explain a good part of the recent surface temperature change. Now, to reiterate that, I'm going to show you what I just showed you in another way. It's with a different data set. In this case, it's the GIS, the Goddard Institute for Space Studies Surface Temperature Record. And here I'm just showing you the, this global surface temperature, in this case in red, the representation from the components in white, and here are the components, ENSO, volcanic activity, sun, and anthropogenic grass gases. So this is at the surface, and you can see when there's an increase in solar activity, there's warming, when there's an increase in greenhouse gases, there's cooling, and when there's volcanic aerosol, sorry, there's warming, and with volcanic aerosols, they're cooling. Right, now, this is at the surface. You can do the same thing in the middle troposphere, because we have measurements of the temperature in the middle troposphere by the microwave sounding unit. Now, I'm sure some of you have heard the ongoing debate about trends in the troposphere versus surface, and that's why this line here, which is the anthropogenic component of the observations, you can see there's less trend here in the middle troposphere than the surface. That's why the trend is less. Now, it's not entirely clear whether this is an instrumental effect because of the satellites trending, or it represents a real less variability in the troposphere. But for the purposes of understanding the solar signal, you can see the solar signal is present here and detectable in the middle troposphere. It's actually somewhat larger, getting to be about 0.1 K now. You can see the ENSO and the volcanic signals um, are, are definitely present and enhanced. Now, if we continue up into the lower stratosphere, so these three regions go from the surface to 20 kilometers, a mere 20 kilometers above the surface. Now you can see what's happening is we have a big signal by the solar cycle. This is now up to 0.4 Kelvin, and this is related to the changes in the ultraviolet radiation. The trend that you see, just 20 kilometers above the surface, is a cooling trend. And we believe that that's due to the increasing um, chlorofluorocarbons, which are changing the ozone. The ozone layer is depleting, and that's causing temperature change. Some people also believe that the greenhouse gases, although they warm the troposphere, they also cool the stratosphere and, in fact, the thermosphere. So this is a combination of two different anthropogenic gases. You can see now volcan volcanoes warm the stratosphere. At 20 kilometers, the volcanic aerosols produce warming, and the ENSO signal at this point has died out. So what I'm presenting to you here is a picture, a composite picture of the sources of climate change over from the surface to 20 kilometers. And this, we believe, is um, a reasonable estimate of the sun's role. Firstly, it's important to notice that you can detect it. This is the 11-year cycle, and, and I will show you some model simulations. The general circulation climate models, such as used for IPCC, do not, in general, predict a decadal response to the sun's variability. And that's because they assume that all of the forcing is thermal, it's conducted down into the deep ocean, and it doesn't reappear for decades, many decades. The fact that we see the signal here means that the processes are much more complicated than the models have in them at the moment. And I'll show you, they likely, when I show you the simulations from the model, they likely involve dynamical modulation of the troposphere. So this, this result is fairly robust. You can see the solar signal is definitely there. And you can see it further in the ozone layer. So I mentioned the ozone layer because that's the, the gas that resides um, probably 20 kilometers above us. It absorbs UV radiation, so it would be one of the mechanisms for explaining those temperature results. And uh, I, like, I like to show this because I think it's a really important lesson. 
1978, which was a mere 30 years ago, Barry Pitchock had a paper where he suggested that some ozone correlation works experiments in auto-suggestion. And as I'm sure everyone here knows, the whole issue of the role of the sun in climate is, it's a wonderful debate and it's not solved, but it's been going on and on. Yes, the sun does this, no it doesn't. Yes, it does, no it doesn't. And in 1978, Barry Pitchock said, well, anyone who thinks the sun has anything to do with ozone is just clearly kidding themselves. Well, actually, they weren't, because here in the red are the TOMS, which is the total ozone mapping spectrometer, record of global column ozone. And by column, I mean from essentially the surface to 90 kilometers, then integrated over the globe. And so it's a map like this integrated in time. We have um, an understanding of how the UV radiation varies over this time from both instruments on the upper atmosphere research satellite and from models using the known um, effects of faculty, for example. And so we can break apart this record into a component of the sun's ultraviolet changes, a decrease, a downward trend due to, here I've represented it by chlorofluorocarbons, volcanic aerosols playing less of a role in ozone than the sun, and then this quasi-biennial oscillation, which is a stratospheric dynamic circulation in the equator. In other words, this is just another form of internal variability in the stratus. So what happened between 1978 and now, 2008, 30 years, we, are, we, are, we obtained these fantastic databases. We have databases of ozone, surface temperature, we have the forcings, the volcanic influences, we have internal variability. So we can actually start to say something now, quantitatively. Now, if you take those surface temperature, atmospheric temperature, middle troposphere and stratospheric global time series that I show you, they are actually the sum of spatial patterns, or you know, spatial measurements all over the globe. So now, I've, what I've done here is, is worked out the patterns of the solar response at each layer in the atmosphere. So I showed you the global response. You can see the surface response to the solar cycle is not uniform. It doesn't, when the sun's active, the whole surface doesn't warm. Rather, there are areas of cooling, and you can see in the middle troposphere, there's significant cooling at high solar activity in this region of the Pacific, which is um, analogous to a La Nina type pattern. So the understanding now is that the way the sun is influencing the climate is somewhat subtle in that it produces warming and cooling and so at solar maximum, there's a La Nina-type pattern with cooling in the troposphere. And once you get up to the stratosphere, you can see the warming, and that's because of the heating by ozone. Now, just for comparison, the same analysis, just to show you that this type of approach works quite well, if you repeat it for ENSO and pull out the patterns of ENSO variability, when there's a strong El Nino event, as everyone knows, there's warming in the um, East Pacific, there's cooling, in the West Pacific um, and in the Western Warm Pool, when you go up into the troposphere, this is um, changes, and by the time you get to the stratosphere, it's changed again. Now, what about anthropogenic gases? Okay, this is the, these are the patterns now for anthropogenic gases. And you can see here, we have a much more uniform cooling due to, the, to the, what we believe is the anthropogenic effect at the surface and in the troposphere. But of course, cooling in the stratosphere, because as I said, greenhouse gases cool the stratosphere and so does CFC. So this is our current understanding. And I mentioned that the um, thought is that the processes are not 
thermal alone, but they're more thermodynamical. And these patterns here trace out the limits of the Hadley cell and the feral cells. Now these cells, the Hadley cell is where the warming near the equator produces the, causes the atmosphere to warm and rise up, and then it descends down around 30 um, degrees latitude. And then the next cell is the feral cell, and then there's the polar cell. So you can see the, the solar, changing the solar radiation appears to change these dynamical motions. And so, um, it's a little bit slow here, but I want to show you next what, okay. Okay, so that, what I just showed you is 30 years of data. Oops, <laughs> sorry. This is what I wanted to show you next, but let's skip. When you, when you take those patterns, you can say, you can ask, well, I've deduced these patterns from the observations by accounting for the sun and so volcanic activity greenhouse gases. How well does something like a general circulation model do in reproducing those patterns? And so David Ryan at GIS, um, which is in New York, ran their, in this case, the 53-layer model with interactive ozone. So one of the best types of models that you could have at the moment with interactive ozone, which is not what most of the models have that work in the IPCC. And you can see it does maybe a reasonable job. It, it doesn't do the troposphere properly. It sort of does okay in the stratosphere, but it's not getting the proper dynamical patterns properly. So this, in a way, this type of activity, like here I'm just showing you the solar patterns, but you can do the same thing for volcanic patterns. You could do it for ENSO too, except the models typically don't reproduce very good ENSOs. But you can certainly do it for greenhouse gases. These models like these are starting to validate the, um, sorry, results like these are starting to validate the climate models. And so this is an interesting aside for the whole role of the sun in climate change. The sun was monitored for 30 years. We have beautiful space-based data of the irradiance. It's the one external known forcing function. So when we have patterns like this, we can then test our knowledge of the climate system. And to the extent that the models don't reproduce that, then that leads us to, to, to question our current understanding. So that not only do we need to know what the sun is doing in the sort of brute force, how much is it warming the globe, but we also need to recognise that it's part of our environment and we can use it um, to understand the climate system better. Now, I've talked about the past 30 years primarily where we do have these fantastic basic databases. Once we go back in time and look at paleo data, things become much less certain. There are lots of, um, okay, let me explain first. This is the carbon-14 neutrino. It's not solar irradiance, but it's used as an indicator of solar activity going back over the past 10,000 years. In other words, through the Holocene. You know, the Holocene is our current sort of interglacial warming. It's our current period of, warm, of warmth between the ice ages. The galactic cosmic rays produce um, carbon-14 neutrinos, and I'll show you the difference between galactic cosmic rays and brightness in the next slide. But just to show you, when carbon-14 and tree and also beryllium-10 ice cores um, are low, it means that um, solar activity is high. This is inverted here. And that's simply because the space between the sun and the earth consists of, of plasma and solar wind. And the, and the galactic cosmic rays that produce the cosmogenic isotopes have to flow through that to reach Earth. So when the sun is very active and there's a whole lot of magnetic fields of plasma between the sun and the Earth, then there are fewer cosmic rays. So cosmic rays are used as an indicator for the past, 
And there are many reports in the literature about relationships between cosmic rays and climate. But it's important to remember that cosmic rays are not irradiants. It's a proxy. So the question is, what did the irradiants do in the past? Did it simply go through its 11-year cycles? Because we've only measured three 11-year cycles. So all we can really say is, well, yes, it does. It had three 11-year cycles. What about in the past? Did it vary as much as this um, indication here, 1992, showed? Or does it have? Does it even have a long-term trend? So to understand that, we need to now look at the physics of the whole solar system. And this is another reason why. Understanding the Sun and Earth as a system is really fascinating because we actually have to know that to understand things like cosmogenic isotopes and how they impact climate. So here is the Sun. What I've been talking about in terms of the solar brightness is simply the photons coming directly. Eight minutes they arrive Earth. But the Sun produces um, plasma. You've probably heard of coronal holes, which are dark regions on the Sun from which we have these coronal mass ejections flying out. And they perturb the space environment of the Earth. So the Earth and the surface are right in here. And this surrounding it is this magnetic field called the magnetosphere. So the galactic cosmic rays come through here. They're modulated. And, and here's an important, the, the point that I want to make is that it's the closed flux on the sun, the regions that expand out and back that produce bright regions, the faculty the spots, that produce the radiation. But what produces the modulation of the cosmic rays is the open flux. And that's only about 10% of the total magnetic flux on the sun. Now, open flux simply means that the magnetic fields from the sun expand out. And because they're open, then the mass or the atmosphere from the outer layer of the sun can expand into the heliosphere. OK, so this is like a little lesson in the solar dynamo. The reason we have the 11-year solar activity cycle and the reason the irradiance changes is that inside the sun is a dynamo based at the, the bottom layer of the convection zone. It produces magnetic flux on the surface. The sun rotates on its axis differentially, stretches out the magnetic fields, causes some of them to cancel, some of them to not. It has a, a meridional flow that carries the flux to the poles and back again. And of course, there's um, cancellation. OK, now this movie, if I can get it to work, sort of explains it all. Um, I've lost the cursor. <laughs> oh, there it comes. I've got it. But I want to go back. Okay, so you click. Okay, I want to show you this, and that's why I want to take the time, because it really does help explain the difference between the brightness and the cosmic rays. See, here is the sun's dynamo, twisting up the magnetic fields, right? Transporting them to the poles. And in the end, this is what happens. We have these closed flux, and these are the sources of the irradiance. But see here, some of the fields get um, stretched out and expand into space. And these are the sources of the cosmic ray variation. So it's important to understand this difference if you want to know what the sun's brightness has been doing, and if you want to interpret all of the paleo climate results. Some people say, and I'm sure you've heard these arguments, that it's the cosmic rays themselves that are, doing, are producing climate change. Cosmic rays, in terms of energy, you have a factor of nine less than a factor of 10 to the nine less energy than the sun's brightness. 
And the variation is a factor of 10 to the 6. So just in terms of simple energy explanations, we at least like to start with the idea that it's the brightness that's causing the changes. You can take models of the, this magnetic flux transport on the sun and generate longer term changes based on constraining those models to represent the observed sunspot number because sunspots are really just magnetic flux. And this is what you come up with, this dark curve. It says that yes, the sun has strong 11 year cycles. Over the past few hundred years, maybe the minimum of those cycles decreased a bit, but, but by less than a tenth of a percent. So we believe that there are long term variations in the sun's irradiance, but they're not nearly as dramatic as, as, um, has been, as has been proposed in the past. Now, you can tie this together in, in providing a perspective of the whole longer term, the whole instrumental record, in the same way as I showed you the analysis of the, the space era record. This now is the global surface temperature record from the instrumental data put together by the University of East Anglia. This is what we believe our climate, the surface temperature, has done in the white curve. And in IPCC, for example, here are the various forces to explain that. But we can look at the record of ENSO going back in time. This is, this is the long-term record of ENSO. You can see big ENSO events, but not, not a trend. There's a very modest trend here. You can see volcanic activity going back in time. Again, a very modest trend. You can see solar variations with a, a modest upward trend. It's a factor of 10 less than the upward trend in the greenhouse gases. And interestingly enough, this combination here, the orange curve, is the combined greenhouse gas positive radiative forcing and the aerosol cooling. And you can see what happens here is that this period here, where there are big, the biggest anomalies from this sort of representation, occurred during the First and Second World War, where basically there just weren't really any data. So this representation says that all of these um, natural and um, volcanic and sun do play a role in the long-term climate, but they're a factor of 10 or less smaller in terms of the trend than the, um, the net effect of the anthropogenic greenhouse gases. Now, for the future, we can expect that, well, the sun is certainly going to keep going, and there's actually, you've probably heard uh, indications that, well, maybe we're going to a modern minimum. I think it's really premature to say that. We're still in a low period now. 19, 2008 is a period of solar minimum. And in fact, in 1986, I can remember, there was a paper in Science. This was solar minimum two decades ago, and it said, the sun is, is, is dimming, the sun is going out. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, Sun's radiation is decreasing, but sure enough, it turned around and went back again. So, there's a solar minimum. There are always lots of speculation about what the sun's doing, but I think it's going to keep doing this 11-year cycle. We need to know how it's affecting ozone, which is another aspect of climate change, because ozone is expected to recover from CFDC depletions, and we need to know if that's solar or not. Interestingly enough, we're now at solar maximum. The next solar cycle. Some people say, people who have dynamo models, like I showed you that, that sort of animation of the dynamo, some people say that based on that, the next cycle will be 40% higher than present. But other people who look at more of a statistical perspective of the, the solar activity say that it will be more like cycle 23. So, we don't know, we can't even predict the next solar cycle, let alone long-term variations, but it's going to be very exciting. And we were looking forward to continuing 
the awareness measurements into that period, but um, I, I'm sure everyone knows here the problems that have been um, have confronted the EMPOs, which was to be the climate monitoring, of which um, the total solar ratings and the spectral ratings were to be a part. Um, they've been discoped now from EMPOs, so we expect the, the, the sun's record of irradiance will end around 2012. In other words, four years from now, that will be the end of our record of the sun's irradiance. And so then, I guess I won't be able to come back and tell you <laughs> here's our new results of the sun. Without the thesis, however, then um, there will be bigger uncertainties in, in the variations that I've shown you for the sun. Oh, I have a, can I have my summary? Okay, so, well, okay, solar driven and anthropogenic climate change occur, natural, all of these things occur together. So you can't just read something that says the sun's doing it all or the sun's not doing anything because it's, it's just not, you know, everything's happening together. The surface and the atmospheric temperatures respond to the sun, and you can see that in multiple data sets. It's modest, but it's detectable, which is important because it says that the models are doing it right. For one thing, they need to include interactive ozone. Longer-term solar radiance changes are observed, which is why we were hoping to have, through MPOS, which is the nation's operational monitoring, we were hoping to obtain a long enough database to start looking at the minima, because that's where you would see a manifestation of the longer term changes. Um, and the issue of the models, I've talked about that. We have a really good opportunity to now look at the, the responses to the sun, and then so we'll try and make the models better. So, thank you.
should also be able to explain past solar variations before we hit this time period where greenhouse gases increase as well. So I have a much simpler problem initially that I'm um, taking solar reconstructions from Julius and from other people and then go into our tools that we're using over this period or even over longer time periods and say I can say which ones do fulfill the continued smooth um, transition from a natural perturbed world maybe to now an anthropogenic world and that's kind of the perspective that I would like to give today so, but before we start, let me just point one thing out because it, I think it's very critical to keep this in mind. So when I show you this global temperature series from observations, and then we, we launch into this debate, is it anthropogenically forced or is it naturally driven like a solar factor, we really need to keep in mind the key sentence from IPCC. And it says that what we're looking at is really since the mid 20th century, that this part, the warming since the mid 20th century, this part here at the end, that's where the detection and attribution has been done for the greenhouse warming. We're not talking about the full 20th century. And this is a very important separation because when you go further back in time, greenhouse gases are less and we come towards a period where it's purely naturally driven. And it's key to remember when we talk about global warming, it's not the whole 20th century, but it's this last component here. I'll come back to this. So from a paleo perspective, paleo in my uh, view here is really just the last few hundred years and maybe a few thousand years that we can take where we have a good spatial coverage of information. Not perfect, but we have enough information both high resolution seasonal from tree rings, from ice cores, from corals, documentary data that help us to reconstruct climate in different areas and also integrate it over a hemisphere for at least six, seven hundred years and then a little bit less good resolution, another 2,000 years back. Then we go to maybe decadal resolution or, or a little less 50-year resolution, and we can cover pretty much the whole scene. What I'm focusing on is mostly this period where we have really annual-type data. And what I'm trying to do is to give the connection, similar as Jack Eddy did now 30 years ago, to say the instrumental period at the very end, here is the perspective over the last few centuries that is hopefully an apple-to-apple -apple comparison, so you, you have a continuum in there. What he did 30 years ago, where he essentially relaunched the whole contribution of the sun to climate question, um, he looked at the 11-year sunspot history that was available, he extended it and found that we have very nice records of the 11-year sunspot cycle, and then, as Judith mentioned, there's this modern minimum period which goes from um, 1645 to about 1715, when essentially the sunspots disappeared. Like my mic just disappeared. Oh, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, the sunspots disappeared, but it was not that there were no observations. People, Galileo Galilei started in, in 1610 and documented these sunspots. And we have almost daily drawings where these sunspots were, were observed and how they rotated around the sun. And people then looked for these things, but about 1640, in the mid-1640s, they essentially disappeared. So the question, as Judith also posed, what does that mean for the solar irradiance? What does that mean for the activity of the sun? What Jack Eddy then did here in, in this paper in Science in 1976, he used other, another predictor in there as well, which is, as Judith also showed, carbon-14. 
which was measured in tree rings, it's well dated, and there is this correlation between carbon-14 variations and the envelope of the sunspots. The question is, how closely related is it to the solar irradiance? It's the only proxy that we have. Now we can actually look at auroras, we can look at naked eye observations of sunspots. Sometimes they're so big you don't need a telescope to look at it. The Chinese records have documented what they describe that there are you know, birds and crows in the sun and, and so on. And you can correlate the overall fluctuations of this with carbon-14, beryllium-10, or then the observed sunspot records. And what you realize is these big-scale variations, where you have these minima, they are represented in all of these measures. So we, we, we believe that, although not perfect and not a direct measure of total solar irradiance, it's a measure of activity in general. And the question for us is particularly how do we have to scale this? Jack Eddy did then not only the you know a history of solar activity, but he put the best possible temperature record against that. And that was essentially the, the start of this sun climate relation uh, in the modern climate research world. So what he took is this blue line, what we see is two points on the globe. It's Paris and London. Estimates are available going back to about here from Hubert Lang. Um, these are mostly winter temperatures. And what you see, or what he documented there was that there is a very close relationship between the activity of the sun, represented by these different solar indicators, and that temperature. What we would today do is, of course, shy away from going to two points and saying this should represent global climate. But these were the only long records that were really available. Nowadays, 30 years later, we're in a different world. And I'm going to try to um, focus on this a little bit. So we can reassess what Jack Kenny did 30 years ago now um, in a different context. I want to go through uh, a slightly like a modeler's perspective, but with this historical context in mind. I want to start off with some things that Judith showed, 11-year cycle variations, where they show up, <coughs> and uh, how models possibly could represent these. We go to the vertical structure, and then try to go into the longer time scale. And I'm going to show you model results that are with the IPCC models. So not the very latest specialized models that can take some of these indirect effects of ozone in the dynamical stratosphere, but the ones that are used to give you this message that the current globe is warming and that it's anthropogenic, very likely anthropogenic, and that there is this ramp up into the future that would be associated with any of the scenarios that we have looked at. So it's going to be this type of model, and it has to be a test on these types of models um, to see the continuum from a naturally driven world to an overlap and then maybe into an anthropogenic world. So let me start with the 11-year cycle. And again, you've seen different indicators. Here in this figure, very nicely put together, there's a bunch of, of different measures of solar activity that you see. In the variability that you see in the, in the yellow background, this is really the rotational cycles when sunspots move to the front, the drop in solar irradiance, and then in the mean, the overcompensation of these variations simply due to the, faculty, the solar faculty background radiation that increases. But you can look at the sunspot numbers, you can look at a flare index or an F10.7 flux, different things, but you see these 11-year cycles. If we look over the instrumental period from the sun, 
there is not really a big trend. What we see is a very clear 11-year cycle. But there's debate if maybe the minima have shifted up a little bit or a little down. But fundamentally, over this period, there is no trend. The same can be done. This is the sunspot record here since 1950. And up here is the measured cosmic ray flux that, as we was just mentioned before, that have been also postulated as possibly having an effect. And the, the mechanism there would be through uh, cloud condensation nuclei that would influence cloud brightness, particularly the lower level clouds over the subtropical oceans. Now, we can pick out a nice 11 year cycle from the cosmic ray measurement, so it doesn't matter which measurement you take. This is climax uh, in Colorado. But you can take any of those. There is a beautiful 11-year cycle. But from all these measurements, there's also no trend over the last 50 years. And that's important to keep in mind. If the cosmic ray flux through the cloud condensation nuclei is indeed an important process, and there's no trend, then it's very hard to say that this is connected to our warming right now. Because cloud condensation nuclei, they are right there at that moment. The production rate changes up or down over the 11 year cycle, but they remove the precipitation. There cannot be any memory in there. Whereas the debate about if there is a background change in the irradiance properties, there are people that have suggested that there are mechanisms that in the sun, this background trend could be due to a memory, an overlap of the different cycles, and that a memory could build up. In the cosmic rays, this is not possible with cloud condensation nuclei, the lifetime of water vapor and the cloud particle is of the order of seven to ten days, maybe two weeks, depending where you are. But there's no memory potential. There's no trend in the cosmic rays. It's very, very hard to argue that this should be the process to give you any climatic trend. So the takeaway from this was there is an 11-year cycle, yes, but trends over these last 50 years, where the IPCC, IPCC detection attribution has happened, there's really no trend. Now, people have measured in the atmosphere, this is reanalysis data, 11-year um, cycle variations. But first, it took actually quite a bit because this 11-year signal at the surface is very small. And in the middle troposphere, it took um, some innovative approach. First, the individual years had to be sorted by the phase of the PPO, as Judith Lean mentioned before, this variation in the stratosphere. And with that, the change in the top-down communication from the middle to the lower atmosphere, essentially. When you sort all your temperature measurements by one particular phase of the QBO, suddenly, out of these noisy temperature records, beautiful 11-year cycles show up. On one side, this dashed line, that's the sunspot cycle, as measured by sunspots. And on the other side, this is a temperature fluctuation. So you start to see it if you do the right sorting out of a very noisy series. More modern statistical tools are being developed, and I think this is a beautiful um, example of interdisciplinary collaborations. So statisticians that have long worked with signal detection, pattern recognition, and so on, have come to this problem. And they have started to look at very, the same very noisy series, but they have some innovative tools here, the empirical model decomposition. It's something that looks at the data driven by the measurements, and tries to see if there is a coherent structure, not an exact phase, it's not a Fourier transform, but if there is a behavior in a particular band that can be pulled out of really noisy data. 
it's not something to be developed by climatologists, that's where the statisticians come in. So I think this is one example, and what you see here is the temperature variations from 850 hectopascal to 10, so that covers the very low troposphere up into the stratosphere, and the time here is from 19, whoops, did I click? No, let's go on back. It's from 1960 to about 2003, and what they found here, they did treat each individual pressure layer independently, and they find a coherent irregular cycle structure throughout the whole column in a very noisy time. Each level is very noisy. And on top you see the solar 10.7 flux, which is an indicator of solar activity. You can put the same plots there as well, this is about the same. But what you see here is the association of a signal and the amplitude of this is up to 0.1 degrees Celsius of this 11-year cycle. Now, one other thing has been looked at, and Judith mentioned this also before, that it's not only a radiative effect that comes from the sun, but once you change the temperatures on different levels of the atmosphere, there's also going to be a dynamical response to this. And what Karin Levitske has, has done is she has looked at um, first radiosonic data and then um, reanalysis data. And what she did here is from the North Pole to the South Pole, looked at vertical profiles, and then all the years, and this is the phase, again, that take each year and sort it by which phase is the QBO in, this about 26 to 28 months variability in the stratosphere. Just take all the years where things are in one phase and make a time series or do everything in the other phase. And what you see in the mixture of all the years and you look for this regression to the 11-year cycle, it's very hard to see anything. But if you take all of the years where the phase is in the easterly, phase in the stratosphere, you start to see that in the subtropics there are these temperature signals above the Hadley cell, whereas in the QBO west there's a strong warming over the northern polar area. This contrasts to a cooling, by the way, in the QBO easterly phase over the northern pole. Now, this has dynamical effects, very important dynamical effects. If you would look down from the top onto the north pole, there is North America, Here's Africa, Europe, and Eurasia. Uh, this is the phase where all the years are in QBO easterly phase. And you look at the particular the, the, the regression onto the solar cycle, you see that this, this is called geopotential height, but it's a measure of temperature underneath that layer. You see that you have positive deviations outside of the polar area and very negative inside, which would fit with a very cold pole underneath. And in this QBO westerly phase you see a very warm interior of the pole and less outside. This has important implications for the westerly circulations around the pole in winter time. When you have an enhanced temperature gradient, you speed up the westerlies dramatically. Over the continents where the westerlies, because of the temperature gradient is bigger, the pressure gradient is bigger, and with that the westerlies speed up. And in northern Canada, in northern Siberia, these are winters that are actually quite warm because the strong westerlies are blowing and they don't let cold air build up. That is sluggish cold air that forms right at the surface, just radiatively, you cool out in, in wintertime. Whereas these years here will be very different. And so here you have a solar effect that shows itself particularly in one region. But it has to be, you cannot do it with all years, you won't see much. 
But if you sort it by the particular dynamical structure above in the stratosphere, then you have a significant connection to the, to the surface. So this is just one effect that how, how solar irradiance can come all the way to the surface. Now, the question back to what is driving the changes right now. And I try to explain this usually this way. So we now have some understanding how the, how the sun radiatively or dynamically can affect the atmosphere. But what we know is that if you would look from the surface all the way up to the atmosphere during a solar active period, more radiance, particularly more high-frequency radiation, you get the warming up throughout the column, and preferentially in the higher parts of the atmosphere, a stronger warming, because that's where all these the biggest percent changes are in the solar cycle. The UV radiation here in the lower stratosphere, that's where the biggest signals are, but it's throughout the column that we should see the same warming. By the way, I'm just showing you in the recent times, the surface has also warmed, so it's not necessarily a surface to atmosphere exchange. So now let's look at greenhouse gases. When greenhouse gases are changing, it's like this greenhouse effect, we trap heat close to the ground, if you want. This is absorption of long wave radiation that comes from the surface, re-radiating it in both directions. The surface sees a strong, or sees the warming. If you go into the stratosphere, CO2 is also a very good emitter. Both we have um, absorption higher and higher in the, in the troposphere that lets, it's emitting at cooler temperatures up. Second, we have ozone depletion. And third, the CO2 in here is a good emitter. That's what actually keeps us from warming up. We have gases up here that emit out uh, through the atmospheric window, and we have a, a, a constant temperature. When we change the CO2 just a little bit, we would expect the surface below the tropopause to warm. That's where the weather happens. And above, overall, the cooling. Now, these are the observations. And I want, before we discuss this, there were, up to about three years ago, there was a strong debate. If this in the stratosphere is indeed cooling or not, and it was observational data from satellites were saying it's pretty flat. Climate models systematically said we get the cooling. We never, nobody knew what was correct, and it was usually said that something is wrong with the climate models. Climate models has a systematic cooling the higher up you go. We had the right things in the climate model that when a volcanic eruption would happen, we would see these spikes up. Because we put aerosol into the stratosphere, aerosol absorbs some near-infrared radiation or upwelling long wave. You would get the right response on that time scale. But what about the greenhouse gases? And most recently, we found that there were some errors in a number of corrections to the satellite data. It turned out that the model data were roughly correct, whereas the observational data had some error. I don't want to say all the observations are wrong. Sometimes you you know, can tease um, the data people. But what I want to say with this example is climate models have evolved to a quality that sometimes when you can't produce something that is observed consistently through every model and at all at different time scales, you can go back and also question the data. Climate models are almost our partners in this game now because they do represent our best physical understanding. So this example really worked, I think, well. And if you just want to hammer this home, what the trends are there, the troposphere and surface are warming, the stratosphere is cooling, and we can drive it further. You can look into 
the mesosphere, and you can look up to the thermosphere. And as I said, the higher you go with these greenhouse gases being uh, big emitters, we have an observed cooling up to 17 Kelvin degrees Celsius up in the upper part of the atmosphere. And it's not only from these direct temperature measurements or indirect temperature measurements that we get this, but engineers that are dealing with satellite orbits around the Earth, they're also saying that the drag, this very thin atmosphere that is up there, is changing. And it's consistent with the compaction of the upper part of the atmosphere that gives them a change in the drag and therefore infer also a cooling. So we're talking about multiple lines that really confirm the upper part of the atmosphere is cooling, the lower part is warming, and that does not fit to our understanding of the 11-year cycle. And I have one more figure in here that comes here from uh, the stratosphere, if it comes. So there's this cooling trend in the stratosphere, and that's what is this background change in the greenhouse gases. But superposed on this is an 11-year variation. And this 11-year variation is insane. It's a warming during the peak of the 11-year solar cycle. That confirms the directions of what we expect of the 11-year pulsing is there. And the trend is going in the opposite direction. It does not fit with an increased solar activity. It does fit with an increased greenhouse gas concentration. So let me move on and start to talk just a few slides on the longer time scales. Again, as I said, for a paleoclimate and a modeler or reconstruction person, it doesn't necessarily matter which one is the right solar irradiance history. What we know is that we are overall quite certain about the phase of solar variability. But the question is big about the amplitude. Could it be that in modern minimum, the solar irradiance might have been much less? Or maybe the UV in particular was much less? And so I want to examine just a couple issues that would put this into the temporal context. So one of the, the series that we can use for reconstructing irradiance is beryllium. And as I said, it has the same type of temporal variations, and we just need to scale it in the right way. Um, different scaling factors, as Judith has shown. Previously, people thought there could be quite a large background trend. More recently, they've gone to smaller ones. The phase has not changed. And so what we have done, oh, let me, maybe this first, before I show you what we have done. This is a figure that comes from the IPCC report. And this is putting the most recent warming here into context. And what is, what is tried here is a time history for the last thousand years for volcanic eruptions. You see these intermittent spikes, solar variations, and here you see phase variations that are between the small variations and the big ones, they are the same, but they're different scale factors. And at the bottom here are greenhouse gases that have changed. Now, these three forcings are used to explain climate. The first is what you see here in a gray background. These are climate records. These are different climate reconstructions that are based on different networks of tree rings of proxy data from corals, from ice cores, historical documents, and all different ways of how they are combined. And what you see is there is uncertainty, absolutely. Some of these reconstructions represent summer temperatures, some try to estimate annual temperatures. But what you see is that they have some time evolution in common. The gray scale, the darker the gray, the more similar 
do all these different reconstructions behave in time? So you can follow the darkest part in here and you see these variations. On top of that are these colored lines. And these colored lines are energy balance models, more or less. And energy balance models do not know anything about climate whatsoever. The only thing that they know about is these three factors up here. And they make a choice, which volcanic, which solar, which greenhouse gases. And that's it. There's nothing else going into these climate models. The various first order estimate. And what you see, depending on what you choose, you get here a spread and variations depending on the scale of your solar forcing. But then you see these bumps in here that are mostly driven by the volcanoes, some underlying variation from the sun. But when you come to about 1400 or so, these lines here behave very similarly to the gray dark background. It's a little bit of a question of the scale, that's the only thing, but if you look at the time evolution, these things are very similar. It's very difficult to hold it, to take these apart and say, you know, what, um, what is going on. What is interesting, these climate models can also do an exercise, and you see these, fit, these fine lines down here. This is if after 1850, the greenhouse gases are ignored, so purely natural. You can see the greenhouse gases haven't changed from 1,000 to about 1,800 or 1,760, somewhere here. And if you completely ignore this greenhouse gas, and then you try to explain everything with the solar and volcanic variations, you're right in here, the same thing, and roughly here is where they start to diverge. And if you have an explanation that works because of noise here, and the climate records are not so good, but from about 1400 all the way here, the solar and volcanic as the primary drivers, you would expect that the same drivers, if they're really responsible for all these variations, would work all the way to the present. But they don't here in the 20th century. And the reason is, we need these greenhouse gases in order to reproduce the warming. You can see, particularly in the second part of the 20th century, the sun is pretty flat, as I said, no trend, but then we have the increase of volcanoes. Since 1963, volcanoes at home have started, El Chichon in the 80s, and then Pinatubo. And the combination of a flat sun and the increased volcanoes naturally would actually cause the cooling. And that's the separation. So, this is the background. Now, we tried an experiment with an IPCC model where we said, here is one beryllium series, and this one here is exactly the same one, but we just applied a different scale factor. Nobody knows what is the right scale factor. So, we took this dash line here, it's the uppermost <coughs> estimate that has been published what that background radiation could possibly be, how cold or how strong of a solar radiation. The time and the phase evolution is exactly the same, but it's the magnitude of the forcing that we have changed. So if we look at what the response is in this GCM, fully coupled climate model, we can separate, I showed you the large variation of global temperature from an intermediate and it's the intermediate one, is the one that people have used in the APCC models in the 20th century, or a small scale. So we can separate the climate signal if, it, if there would be a very large, something a little bit less, or a very small solar variation. They do separate, so that would be an effect. Key is, here in the end of the 20th century, it doesn't really matter. You come from a very cold, it's another half a degree Celsius, colder little ice age if you want, 
or you come from something that is barely, it's just volcanically perturbed, but it will be a relatively warm little ice age. In the 20th century, it doesn't make any difference. The, key, the reason is the drivers are greenhouse gases. So what we see in the end of the 20th century is not a recovery out of a little ice age. The blue run does just that. But it's a direct driven forcing at the end of the 20th century, which is driven by greenhouse gases. So here is our model version that is used in IPCC. This is the model of simulation. In the background, you see two, one of the reconstructions with the least amplitude and one of the reconstructions with the biggest amplitudes. And our model simulation falls somewhere in between. This is with intermediate change, which is twice the 11-year sunspot cycle. Maybe it's less. But this would not be inconsistent in this model with, our, with the climate reconstruction. But in the 20th century, as I showed before, it's driven by greenhouse gases, not by the sun. So, the same approach. Now let's look at present again. What you see here in red are climate models are now taken as ensembles. Multiple runs with different initial conditions and actually over different models. And they contain, these red areas contain temperatures of the northern hemisphere, or of these different regions that are driven by all um, forcings. So the natural ones, volcanic and solar variations, and greenhouse gas variations, tropospheric aerosol, they're included in these red experiments. The blue ranges that you see only contain natural variations, sun and volcanoes. As I showed you before, from these simple energy balance estimates, we would say somewhere in the 20th century there's a separation. And these graphs here show exactly the same thing. Here's the global average the global land or the global ocean area, the red and the blue at the end of the 20th century really go apart. But you can also see it in different regions, not only on the global average, you can see it in many locations. And this is compared with the black lines that is in here, which is the actual observations of temperature, instrumental data. And you can see that the red is actually quite efficient in picking up even in different regions in these large continental scale areas to show the right trends given the combination natural and anthropogenic, and at the end of the 20th century, it really is the anthropogenic component that seems to dominate. Now, this is the perspective past, present, and future. If this simulation that I showed you with an IPCC type model, driven by external forcings like the sun and volcanoes, if this really, do you think this does a good job in representing what our climate reconstructions give us, which don't know anything about forcings. This is a good representation, and if this climate model in red, if you agree that it represents now the continuum from a naturally driven to this overlap, natural and anthropogenic, this overlap seems to convince you as well, then this is the perspective forward in time following different scenarios. None of these scenarios are a prediction. But they are what-if scenarios. What if we follow a very kind of strong increase in emissions, or we start to stabilize our emissions? And then the atmospheric concentration. In fact, by the end of the 21st century, in this scenario, which is an IPCC, it's IPCC scenario B1, and it stabilizes at the, uh, with a, above a doubling CO2 compared to pre-industrial. But this is the magnitude of temperature change that would be, given this range of IPC scenarios, more optimistic or maybe more pessimistic is my judgment in here. 
these are big changes. And I just you know, wanted to remind you from a paleoclimatological perspective. Four, five, six degrees. This is the same number that we would put between a glacial and an interglacial on a global basis. This is not a small number. Six degrees is probably about the last, <coughs> glacial, last maximum, glacial maximum to our interglacial. On a global basis, that's a huge number. Um, so, one thing we often are asked, well, but this is heavily overblown. Are we really overblowing this? Should we really be worried, or what indications are there? And I just want to give a couple of perspectives. This is, these models are not perfect. There are many ways we need to test them. But here are a couple of things to keep in mind. Current emissions, the latest numbers that we have, real emissions that are estimated, seem to be ahead of all of these what-if scenarios that have been used. We're already emitting more than any of these. So from a, a trajectory, if you want to call it that, that we are on, we seem to be stronger already in terms of emissions than anything that we have considered in these what-if scenarios. Then the other thing is there's always the thought that, well, the vegetation will grow much lusher when we have higher CO2 levels, and in that sense, it will help draw down some of that CO2. And these initial plant models that have been used to estimate that, they have indeed shown that the, you know, the carbon cycle gets involved and draws down some of that CO2. The latest things that I've seen, they actually include nutrients. And that's a little scary because it cuts the efficiency of the vegetation to draw down CO2 to about a third or half at best. So this buffer that we thought we could rely on doesn't quite seem to be there because vegetation needs nutrients, otherwise it cannot grow, even though there will be the carbon around. So that's something that comes now, and it needs to be confirmed with more models and really studied, but it's an indication that says we're probably not overestimating. In the most pessimistic scenario, this factor would add another 200 ppm into the atmosphere at the end of the 21st century. 200 ppm is a huge number. We have added, compared to pre-industrial, now about 100. And this, just this factor of having the nutrients would add another 200 on top of the what-if scenario that has been run. And you can look at other things. The speed of the sea ice retreat that we just saw last fall, it's a single year. The trends between the models and the observations seem similar. We have seen in models that there are sometimes big jumps where things can change quite rapidly. There are positive feedbacks, but then it slows down again. And then, so we have to be careful of saying this one year that was such a dramatic jump is the catastrophe itself. But it's an indicator that shows that the climate system is getting more sensitive up there to the perfect constellation of clouds, of the wind systems that pile up the sea ice. And it gets very sensitive at, um, at times to um, these, these uh, conditions. Uh, you can see some other things here, and maybe from a paleo perspective, if we would look at some other past time periods that we simulate. One observation from a modeling perspective there is, we have a hard time sometimes hitting the magnitude of past variations in compared to geologic data. We don't seem, when we go for a warm period, or even sometimes for a cold period, to every time heavily overestimate what the geologic record, hard geologic data, is telling us. If anything, we tend to be a little bit on the small side. That also is an indicator maybe these models are not overestimating these um, changes. 
Now, um, the last thing I wanted to, to do here is when you take this time history, and I think it's fairly convincing, at least to me, that we have a, on this global and very large scale a fairly good handle that radiative balance seems to make a lot of the climate system. It's not perfect, but it's, it explains a whole lot. What do we need to do in the next round? Where do we need to improve? And there are two big time scale differences. One is these long-term questions. What happens with the carbon cycle feedback? What happens to the polar ice sheets? If you want to give good projections of sea level rise, for example, we need to start to improve really these big ice sheets. And so far, none of the climate models have interactive ice sheets. We need interactive ice sheets in there, and then we need to go into the geologic record and test if these models have the right sensitivity to go through a change of these ice sheets. I think it's a fundamental paleo problem that is being used, should be used for actually verifying these models. But that's something that we, we need very much in here. The second thing is, and that comes from uh, you know, buildings like here, institutions like here, where there is a question about can you make predictions now for particular regions? On the global basis, that's one thing, but nobody lives in the global average. Can you make predictions for different regions? And that's not necessarily temperature. Temperature may be too, but what about hydrologic variables? Precipitation, soil moisture, that's what is going to affect. When we have historical seen big variations in moisture has been the big, big constraint on civilization. Can we say that there are systematic variations in the future? Can we predict those? A um, couple examples, and I'm going to shoot just through that. First, these long time scales. People have said, well, it could be that the sun goes into the wonder minimum, what Judith also referred to before. I want to give you one simulation that we have done that comes under the term of geoengineering. And we said, well, if the sun doesn't want to do it, we could do it for the sun, maybe by putting reflectors between the sun and the earth and simulate man-made a decrease in the solar energy that comes to the earth. So what we try to do is the following. We try to take the, uh, the uh, A2 scenario, this scenario here, and we try to say, what would the sun have to change? By how much? in order to bring us down to what we call the, the 2000 stabilization or the commitment experiment. If in the year 2000 we were frozen our atmospheric greenhouse gas concentration, we have run this as a lack of control. What would we have done, what would you have to do to this upper, most pessimistic scenario in order to come down to where we were in the year 2000? So what you have to do is this. What you see up here, this is the modern minimum. These are the solar variations with the sun's box, and this is what we would have to do. If we would go into a modern minimum right now, it would maybe some effect. If we go at the end of the 20th, 21st century, it doesn't matter. The greenhouse forcing, compared to these natural variations, the greenhouse forcing is so big, modern minimum come or go doesn't really matter. It might have for some of the dynamical effects, maybe there is something to it, but on a global scale, this is not going to be either a natural solution that just comes by chance. And if you want to form this in terms of geoengineering, you can also imagine the magnitude that would be necessary. So we can, we could stabilize the temperature. And on this big time scale, just remember this, this figure, and that also goes into the magnitude of change. This is rate of change of radiative forcing. 
So the change of radiative forcing over a certain time interval from 20,000 years to present. Here to present. And what you see here, this is last glacial maximum. This is the transition from the glacial into the interglacial. It's not temperature, what we're looking at the rate of change. How quickly did we come out of the last glaciation? What was its impact? You can maybe imagine that. This is, you know, ice in New York City throughout the Midwest. And here, there's no ice. This is the transition glacial into glacial. Currently, we're doing this, and this is projected. So the rate of change, the speed that we're going towards these very large climate variations, that I think is the key. And so when we do a comparison, what could be the impact of a two degree, three degree climate change? We need to keep in mind the natural comparisons that we have, they have much more time go through these changes. So please remember that. Um, finally, I think I'm not going to elaborate on this. Judith pointed it out. I think the, chan the chance now to go forward towards these regional questions is that our models, the IPCC models, are not quite ready for prime time in these questions. We are not ready to give you very good regional predictions because we can do it on the example of the solar forcing, we're not capable of really clearly and convincingly produce the right patterns because we have some of the physics, we have some ideas why. Some of the physics are missing in these models. They're restricted in terms of the, the upper boundary. You top out mostly between 30 or 35 kilometers. But the dynamics to, to force the structure that Judith showed or I showed here they really connect more than more from the middle atmosphere all the way down to the surface. And that's something that we need to develop. We're not ready for this at this particular time. But maybe, and this is the thing, the solar force that has undergone 11-year cycle variations multiple times, in fact, in the instrumental period, about 14 cycles since 1850 or so, wouldn't that provide a statistical sample of a forcing and an impact? A forcing and an impact. Not just one ramp up of greenhouse gases over 30 years where we have some observations now with reanalysis data. The statistical identification of a clear cause and effect is much harder when you do it with a single case rather than multiple times. And statisticians really can come in and say, look, even though the solar forcing is much smaller, but when you have 15, 14, 15 samples, and maybe over the last thousand years we could do even more of those, we have much better um, cause and effect potential to recognize what are the dynamical effects and what is the signal. So I want to point out, even though the sun has no effect on the current warming, we can use its variability to go towards these regional scale patterns and test the climate models. So I want to go to the conclusions. I'm just going to jump over this one. So, first of all, this warming that we're seeing is really unequivocal. That's what was stated in IPCC. There's no significant trend over the last 50 years, over the last 50 years, uh, in solar variations that could explain that warming. The natural factors seem to be able, at least back to 1400, maybe a little further, to explain the pre 20th century climate reasonably well, but the most recent 50 years are, are dominated by anthropogenic factors. And particularly, remember, this vertical structure, I think, is one of the most convincing ways that it's not the sun that causes the current warming. And here, the challenge for the future. And uh, I'm going to leave 
this picture up, the needs and the outlook, we need to continue monitoring if we want to avoid some of the debates that are ongoing. How do you hook two disconnected time series together for making continuous history? We need to refine some of these observational records and improve our models and maybe improve our climate reconstructions and interdisciplinary collaborations for this very diverse field. So I think I close here. Thank you. done this, uh, unfortunately, a little too often. Just imagine, if, you, if we take, just as a, an example, a climate model, and we, we don't change anything, we just let it run. Somewhere in the decade of time scales, the model tries, you know, has inherent variability that actually has some structure at roughly decadal time scales. So there was no forcing in there, nothing was changed from the outside, so there's a danger that an inherent variability is being directly associated with a 10-year forcing. Now, the other thing that you need to think back is since 1963, if you look at the solar variations, and by chance or not, but by chance, when the volcanoes go off, they actually came in rather decayed scale, you know, intervals. 63, then we have actually 74 is Fuego, 82 came out Chichon, and 91 is Pinatubo. And Judith had some of these, these graphs in there where you could see, you know, it's very dangerous to say whatever you see on a 10 year scale, that's one, because you understand that the best into volcanoes are just these place. So that's something to keep in mind. Judith, anything to add? No? Um, I'm going to open it up, let the two speakers come up here, leave your microphones on. Okay, so the, um, okay, the issue of the sunlight stars um, is quite, quite, it started with Owen Wilson about 40 or so years ago, um, ground-based observations of stars in calcium emission, which is an indicator of faculty. Remember, remember I said the total irradiance was uh, modulated, or the brightness was modulated by the spots and the faculty? You can monitor the calcium emission, which is a faculty proxy in stars like the sun. And people have been doing that for a long time. Oliver Wilson actually started out monitoring a broad range of stars, early, middle-aged, and um, old. And the sun is a middle-aged G-type star. So looking at the data that was observed by Valley Valley Unison Jastrow in 1990, that um, sunlight stars, and that in itself you know, is an assumption, what's a sunlight star? It must have similar mass, age, composition, rotation rate appear to have exhibit greater variability in their calcium emission than does the current sun. And that is the basis for the earlier estimates of the long-term brightness changes. It was, the assumption was if stars like the sun exhibit a broader range of faculty variations, then that means a plausible 
scenario is for the sun to also look at something like that. Now, a couple of things have happened since then. One is that people have looked at um, more stars, like in um, M something or other, in big clusters of stars, and found that in fact the distribution um, of the sun-like stars implies narrower range of variability for the sun. And at the same time, people have started questioning what is a sun-like star, because as the records have gone on, the way that they do these measurements from the ground is to compare um, a varying star with an invariant star, because you can't do absolute radiometry from the ground, because the atmosphere intervenes. And what they've seen is, and, and Wes Lockwood and Jeff Hall um, are the people responsible for this, what they've seen is they'll have a comparison star, then it will start to vary. So that will cause them to raise questions about, well, what are my sun-like stars, and how invariant are my constant stars? And the result is, I think Jeff Hall said recently in a meeting, well, he thinks there's maybe one sun-like star, whereas originally there was um, a broader perspective that I mean, but we shouldn't throw light the baby out with the bathwater because there are stars like the sun. And younger stars have more spots, and so their irradiance is less when they're more active. And older stars are dominated by factory. So there's a lot to be learned here. But trying to put constraints, you know, whether we get 10 percent constraints. So that is what happened there, right, in the sunlight star business. Um, so the, the issue is that it's probably less variations the sun when comparing with sunlight stars. In terms of the beryllium and carbon, if you look at the whole thing, there are periods um, over the past 10,000 years where the, the, the carbon 14 and the beryllium 10, they actually tend to track when, when there's a low period, like the modern minimum, the dollar minimum, the minimum. I think there must have been, what, 10 or so minimum or more, more over the, that, those past periods. So the sense the cosmogenic isotopes give us a sense that the sun is now at overall high levels, but back in time there will be these dips, you know, like the minima, and they punctuate the record. Um, and so, yeah, you do see trends like that. So the question, thank you. Um, well, thank you very, very much for an excellent presentation. And my question is less to do with the specifics of, of your analysis than it does its relevance. And I'd like to sort of pick up on your opinion on potential minima uh, that, that have been observed. Um, recently, in New York City, a lot of persons, they were climate skeptics, um, met in a, in a convention. And one of the topics. Oh, this is the. Um, I, the it was my the. What is it called? The ANU. Right? What was it called? The Hartland Institute. Yeah, the ANU. In any event, one of the observations there that was repeated a lot was that the current warming we're experiencing is something that is essentially really different. Uh, based on a 1,500-year cycle. And so my question is, what, if anything, uh, do the data and analyses uh, discussed today by you uh, tell us about the likelihood of that assertion being correct? And, and if so, uh, or if not, why are we not? Yeah, so this is the question from Casper. <laughs> well, I can try. Um, so one thing that you need to keep in mind is you know, we, we went through particularly the, the vertical profile. And this vertical profile really shows that something in the energy balance of the system is being perturbed. If it were an internal variation, Tunis has shown the example of El Nino variations. So you think about a completely internal variability of the system, which is the slushing back and forth, if you want, in the Pacific of warm water, either exposing cold water that comes up or covering it with warm water. And with that, 
what you change is the exchange between the biggest heat reservoir, which is the ocean, and the atmosphere. And so when you expose lots of cold water, you actually draw down heat from the atmosphere down into the ocean. So you move heat from the atmosphere into the reservoir. During an El Nino, you do the reverse. So what these natural variations are, natural variability simply changes where you have the energy. You move it from one reservoir into the other, or some response, you move energy around. If it indeed, what we're seeing right now, would be a natural cycle, maybe from the ocean overturning. And if we're seeing a warming in the atmosphere, we should see a cooling in the ocean where this energy would have to come from. However, it's not the case. The oceans are warming up. The land surface is warming up. We see this from borehole records. That in itself, again, this profile, the observation of where we see this warming, simply doesn't fit to an internal variability because the heat would have to come from somewhere. And it's the only thing that we see where it could come from is what we see in the atmosphere is the trapping of greenhouse gases. It's not coming from the outside because otherwise the upper part of it would also warm up. So it's how the greenhouse gases are changing the efficiency of storing heat in the atmosphere. That's really, and so that in itself, can I have for 14 hours. Let me ask, if you take something like the carbon 14 record and the Berlin 10 record and say this is, as Kasper said, an indicator of solar activity, and look at the, the, do a power spectrum and look at the periods, you come up with um, 80 years, um, you come up with 200 years, and there's something around 1,000 or 2,000 years. The 200-year period in particular is, is evident in a lot of climate, paleoclimate data. I mean, it pops up all over the place. And I think that's the basis for some people saying, you know, if you put those cycles together, you know, the overlap, here's the 80 year, here's the 200 year, you put them all together, and so here we are now, coming out of the long-term monitoring, maybe coming, you know, to a minor maximum and maybe going down again. Right, you do all that, but you have to keep in mind that we're mixing here global temperatures versus regional proxies. When you look, like a paleo proxy could be, it will be at one site. And I showed you the regional pattern of the response. If that site, and in fact the classic case is, um, there's a paper published um, from stalagmites in caves in Oman, and that is just where the, Hadley, the intertropical convergence site sloshes back and forth. So it's at the point where the Hadley circulation um, amplifies what's happening. So there are regions on the globe that are particularly sensitive to the sun's impact. And, and that's one of them. Um, East Africa, drought in East Africa is another. So there are the regional factors, and, and it has to talk a little bit about that, but that is not the global temperatures. So one thing when, when people say, yeah, we have this paleo evidence, we do. I mean, we really do have these um, cycles in the paleo climate data that track the cycles in the, in the solar activity, for sure. But that doesn't translate into a global you know, temperature change. It says more the regional patterns, which again gets back to the way Casper explained it, is that things can slosh around, but when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about the whole globe. You know, it's the, anyway. Thank you. <laughs> Jane, you have a question back there? On, on the uh, issue of, by the way, I'm Casper, I'm Jay Gullage from the Peace Center. We've you. worked together before, but never met, actually. So uh, it's very, email button. <laughs> right. <laughs> And these were both great presentations. Thanks so much. And I want to ask about the, 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 the fingerprint difference 
you know, the vertical fingerprint difference that you talked about uh, between the stratosphere and the troposphere. Um, greenhouse gases warm the troposphere but cool the stratosphere, whereas solar changes would warm all the way up. My question is, how do we distinguish between cooling as a result of increasing CO2 in the stratosphere versus cooling from depletion of ozone in the stratosphere? Yeah, that's a great question. Oh, it's a really good question. I mean, I, 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 I tried to... We actually disagree on that one. Oh, well, great. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean there, is, there, is a nice, there is a nice paper was put together, again, based on one of these IPCC models, but made by Ben Sandler. It's in Science 2003 or four. What you will see is it's, it's about the, the height of the tropopause. And the height of the tropopause, which is the separation between the area where our weather happens and the stratosphere above. And then we looked at a whole bunch of climate simulations that were driven either by the full combination of the forces or individual ones, just run only with this factor, forcing factor or not. And what we found is that uh, the, the cooling in the stratosphere you know, responds to two things. One is the ozone decrease that happens over this time, which has leveled off, you know, this, this decrease. And the other thing is the, the greenhouse gas cooling. And so at the tropopause and right above there, I think the ozone might indeed be one of the dominating ones. But when you go higher up, it's, it's the greenhouse gases as a, as a whole and CO2. And you saw that I, I showed one number that goes into the thermosphere. Now we're going to the tens of the degrees Celsius or Kelvin. Um, rather than, you know, one to two degrees in the ozone layer where we see the, the variability uh, of the solar cycle. So this big scale, very high up above the ozone layer, you know, is the sum of all these where the CO2 plays a very important role. At the tropopause, I think there is a, there is a strong uh, ozone contribution, and we could maybe see a slowdown of, the, of this. But in the, in the ozone layer itself, right, if you take the ozone layer, and I showed you the time series of the global ozone, you can see it has a downward trend, and it's leveling off, and it has the, cycle, the solar cycles. When I try to reproduce that time series with either the CFCs, which come down and then level off, versus the greenhouse gases, a cooling would be like this. The fit is much better, and you can explain more of the variance with the CFC cooling in, you know, in that region of, of ozone. But um, that doesn't prove anything, but it says that in the stratosphere, at least, the CFCs are playing a role. Now, in the future, because, um, because we have the Montreal Protocol, the CFC concentrations are changing. And so, you know, now there's a big issue. When will we see the recovery of ozone? And I think the latest estimates are that it will happen maybe as early as 50 years from now, maybe sooner. But what we're going to see, well, firstly, we don't want to have any volcanoes because that will upset things. We'll have the solar cycle. We'll have things like the QBO. And then out of all of that, we have to pull out the trend. And once we see ozone recovery, then we'll be able to separate and get into what Casper's saying is the diagnostics of you know, solar versus greenhouse gases free of the CFC. And so do, you, do you find Casper's reasoning about higher up? Oh, absolutely. In fact, at, at the Naval Research Lab, colleagues of mine are the people who use the satellites. You know, satellites, we've had satellites for 30 or 40 years. We have a fantastic database of what's called orbital elements. And you can look at the orbital elements to juice the density of the thermosphere, and, and as Casper said, around 400 kilometers, which is actually where the space station orbits, there's been a cooling of about 
I don't know, 10 or 12k. Now, for comparison, the solar cycle at 400k is about 5 or 600, sorry, 500 kilometers is about 5 or 600k. So once you get up into the thermosphere, there's massive solar forcing. The whole atmosphere is dominated by the sun, a big 11 year cycle, and you know, maybe a, a few, you know, less than 10 Kelvin. I didn't know we had atmosphere at 4 o'clock. Well, oh, yes! That's why Space Lab falls down on Australia! <laughs> but it's not because it's if you put your hand in, you wouldn't feel it. There are just very few molecules, that, but they move very well. No, no, really, this is a whole big issue. The whole issue is space matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because this is a whole concept of the There could all be this high energy, you know, radiation could come and could potentially really cause harm to life. In none of them do we see anything specific. And particularly what you would have to see is that it's repeated, that there's continuously. So I don't think there is any evidence, even though for some, um, for some people there is a potential to look at this more carefully, there is no smoking gun anywhere that there's, that there's much to be found. That's at the troposphere. If you go up into the stratosphere, then if you don't have the magnetic field and the magnetosphere protecting us, when there's a solar storm, for example, and the um, trapped particles in the magnetosphere and the solar energetic protons, they will funnel in. You know, they'll have a direct path. And so, for example, we would expect ozone depletion because the the solar protons, the energetic protons participating in the chemistry that destroys ozone. When you go higher, I mean, instead of having aurora concentrated um, around the, the poles, you would see it. You know, whenever there's activity from the sun, there wouldn't be the protection of the magnetic, magnetic field. So you'd see all, above 50 kilometers, you would see effects, but down lower where the atmosphere is more dense. And in fact, it's an interesting thing because people have looked. If, if the cosmic rays are the cause of climate change, then you would see, presumably, climate, big climate events when there are these periods where the Earth's magnetic field isn't pro protecting the cosmic rays. And, and you don't see that, which is the point Richard Alley makes a lot. You right. just don't see that big climate change. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, comment on the Article of Physics Day of March of this year. Okay, who set you up for this? <laughs> we were told to be ready. I have not seen 
Okay, you read how long do you want? Okay, can I put up my bigger?
They said because the descriptions are similar, therefore one must be causing the other. But you can't, just because they're similar in a mathematical description, doesn't mean that one is causing changes in the other. So that's the third assumption that is not true. The fourth assumption is that to get the long-term trend, they then said, well, I see this similarity. What I'm going to assume is the long-term solar brightness changes are tracked by this instrument called ACRAM. And that record didn't take out instrumental effects in the satellite series. So that was their fourth assumption when they got, so they got a bigger long-term trend. Their fifth assumption was in order to show, you know, they had that plot and they had these big decadal cycles. They said, I'm going to do a smoothing to get rid of volcanic activity. But as Casper showed, the, the volcanoes are pulsed with the sun. So what they're smoothing, at least showed in part, was a volcanic signal. So it's, a, it's a, an interesting case that the climate change community grapples with is everything that we know. Like I showed you the Iranians record, but it has uncertainties. You know, there's the um, contribution of ENSO, it has uncertainties. These uncertainties, if you stack them up all together, you can come up with a different scenario of the process than we believe is actually happening. So I guess you can see I don't agree with that at all. Yeah, the other, the, other thing is, the other thing is they completely ignore this, what I showed as the vertical structure, for example, which would not, would not fit. We identified the 11 year, but the trends is actually, they're opposite above the top of that. So that's on top. Thanks for that question. I, I prepared my notes on the metro this morning. <laughs> yeah, you asked the question and then you gave the answer. So are you saying, in, in a way, that this is an example, perhaps, of process understanding versus a series of correlations, even if they're drawn out statistically? I, I, I would think so. I mean, in, in the paleo world, we were always resigned, essentially, to such an approach. We need to line up different hypotheses, and we need to go on the assumption that things are continuous. They're, seamless, if you want, between the different timescales, and the same explanation needs to work through time. And then we had different pieces of the puzzle that we wanted to see if they're contradicting each other or if they are pointing to the same underlying process. And in this case here, I think we can make exactly the same, the same statement of saying, yeah, in, in an individual time series where you could do all sorts of filtering and, and so on, you could potentially say, well, they look the same. But if you add in additional layers of information, these would be completely contradictory, and then it would negate that relationship. Okay, so can I ask a question, please? <laughs> Our community is, like we've talked about this, is it worth people who really disagree with that article writing a rebuttal to physics today? Does that then give that article credibility that we don't think it has? Or do you think we as a community should, you know, write a rebuttal to things like that that we, like I, as I, as I said, I listed five things. Actually, I've already written a comment to those people, but <laughs> in another journal. So I tell me, tell us. As someone once removed from this community who has difficulty struggling with what you're saying here, the thing, I think it's extremely important that you do. You do? Because there's a ripple effect outside. And just write, otherwise, it's, there's a disagreement where it's unresolved, etc. I think it's Absolutely critical. Oh, you don't think it would be given, like we think, 
it will give a credibility that we don't, we just think, oh my no, God, no, it's no, them it doing it again. It gives it, it, gives it <laughs> incredibility. What gives it credibility is to not be responded to. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Well, well, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Let me throw in a man just quickly. This today gives it credibility to the late period. It has the credibility. Yes. It's yes. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Let, let me throw in one, so, one thought in this. These, these types of correlation-based statements have, done, have been done over the last 20 years before. And they have been rejected over the last 20 years, multiple times. And so here where we need to, where we need to start also to think about, it's not only there is a statement out there that one needs to revolve, which I, I fully agree if that is the one statement that is completely new, we need to, to work with it, if it's an opinion or not, absolutely. But what if the same argument is being brought up over and over and over again and is being rejected many times? Yeah, we can spend our life. <laughs> no, but that's why right, you know, At what point do you just say, you know, this is in the literature, we really don't need to go there anymore. And of course, if you are not familiar with the literature, you would say, well, but it has not been dealt with. Right. And that's what is being spot right now. But we have multiple other examples in the same direction. I think you described a challenge the human condition that exists not only in your community, but in the political community. Oh, yeah. And in every other. Yes, yeah. you still have to do it. It's unfair. Like yeah. it was unfair. But, but, <laughs> but if, Who's thanks for the feedback. Thank but you. if you state at the beginning that, okay, here we're doing this again, but it has been dealt with before, before, and before, because uh, we uh, present for the final project. And so we have to deal with people who ask the question and they say, well, here's this article, and that totally debunks everything you said. Good. And if we don't have something to say, well, but look, this is the response, and the response says, you're talking about this one thing, and here are these 10 other things, and so we need evidence to develop uh -huh. that. We're not in a mopping up exercise yet. My view, there's, there's a whole issue of whether physics today will even publish a rebuttal because a similar thing happened in science, and some of us wrote, you know, a contrary piece that it wasn't exciting enough then. <laughs> they didn't want to have the, the sort of different view because it wasn't controversial. <laughs> No, but that doesn't count. Like, no, 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 it's fantastic. But like, we're told we have to get our stuff in peer review journals and... No, no, no. We'll take Neil Klein in our community as the intermediary force gets good enough for us. Right, absolutely. And Gavin, I mean, Gavin has a fantastic expose of all of the, you know, like the chilling stars and things like that. And, and I guess once he gets the, the Physics Today article, he'll... Well, that's good. So, you like Neil Klein yeah. You should tell Gavin that. Right. He, like someone said, he nearly is without his laptop. He was at a meeting in February. He's, he is on to that. He, I mean, he's just so devoted to that. Well, uh, good. Uh, oh, that's great. Are there more questions? You should tell Gavin. Give us um, Take a few more questions. Give us some feedback.
Thank you. <laughs> they will stick around. They will stick around a little bit.